So great to see all of you. Thank you so much for um, allowing me last week to have permission to be able to be up at sort of a sibling church, Reality Stockton. They're an incredible church, uh, incredible people. So I appreciate it. I'm also thankful for Pastor Jonathan, who sort of filled the pulpit in my absence. Um, but today, as you guys read the verses, as you saw, these are gnarly verses. So we're going to have some fun going over it. AJ, you good? You ready? Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Forrest, you good? All right. All right. I was thinking and actually reading, and I couldn't find the article, which is a bit frustrating, but there was a New York Times article that sort of proclaimed that we live in an age or in a day that has been called the age of uncertainty. And as I remember reading the article and just even thinking about the title alone, I can see all of the truth in this. There is no longer certainty in the everyday realities of our lives. Think about it. Gender is no longer certain. Sexuality is no longer certain. Our nation's future is no longer certain. Your marriages, our marriages, marriage in general, our children's safety, even the church, even this church has no certainty. Now, what is fascinating right now, just to sort of belabor the point, uh, and it pertains to, I think, probably the industry of Los Angeles more particular than anywhere else, is even proven immense success does not cause certainty. Everything from Roseanne, who had like 18 billion people on her pilot episode, or if you're following the James Gunn scandal right now, who the writer and director of Guardians of the Galaxy, one minute they are on top of the world, and the next they're unhirable, proving that even then craft, their track record, or connections are no longer certain. But of course, everybody knows the age-old thing, that if you say nothing is certain, there's at least one certain thing. What would that certain thing be? Anybody want to take a gander? What? What? What was yours? Nothing? No. You're not allowed to talk out loud. Everybody else talk out, not you, Andre. What, some, what was it? Death. And the old joke is death and what taxes? Yes, yes. We're not going to talk about taxes. We're going to talk about death. I don't want to talk about taxes. There's one thing we can count on. Death. We're not even just, I mean, if we think about it, I mean, death is not something that's unfamiliar to any of us. I mean, death is really what's been called or thought of the engine of life. If you think about it, it's in every form and every function, from the animal that you're all going to eat at your lunch, brunch today, to the plants which die in the, what did they die? In the winter or the fall to be regrown in the spring, or even the billions and billions of blood cells in our body that will just be no more after today. Uh, poet um, H.W. Auden, who I think is incredible, but he wrote this very beautiful and very disturbing poem where he says, death is the sound of distant thunder at a picnic. Mm. I love that quote. I think that is a perfect description of death and life. What is certain is coming. What is certain is coming to us all. The good, the bad, the ugly, the super attractive, the Christian, the atheist. Death is the non-negotiable element of this life. And for what it's worth, we're now closer to our deaths than when I first started our sermon. So just so you guys know, like, we are every second, are you sure you want to be here, like counting down. 
And for some, it's this distant thunder, this very distant thunder, this preparation or even the fear of death, which is ultimately behind the search for people's spiritual awakening. People search for religion because of death being a massive fear. It is this great underlying motivator for all thoughts and actions and hopes and needs and desire. We all, I think, really believe intrinsically ask or intrinsically know that if we won't live forever or if we won't live that long, then how should we live in the small time that's given to us? This is, this is exactly what the book of Hebrews helps us to see today. It's concerned with our ability to live rightly and to die well. It wants us to think what effects does the distant thunder have upon our picnics? Steve Jobs, well, you know, he's, he's told us in very famous words, which probably most of you have read when he addressed Stanford University. Um, they're very powerful and they're worthy, worth of another, uh, worthy of another look. So I'm just going to read this to you about what he said. Jobs says, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost, almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. And of course, the stranger, that's who we call this unknown, charismatic, eccentric author of the book of Hebrews, the stranger shows us today that not only the effects of death, but the purpose of death. Now, I'll just confess this just to make this out there and just say it for public record, that death is not an easy topic. Um, I don't, this isn't fun to talk about. And especially for those who are just visiting and are like, I just wanted church and then brunch at Santa Monica. What is this crap? Like, I understand that. But I also understand that there's, it's not easy for people who death is very, very near. And I know there's people in our body where death is very near um, in their life, in the nuclear family, in the outside family. And so this is an uncomfortable topic. But I, as one of your pastors, um, would be doing you and this church a disservice, a massive disservice, if I avoided probably one of the most important poignant topics in all of this life. And since we're journeying through the book of Hebrews, where it stops, we stop. Where it bends, we bend. Where the book of the Bible challenges us, we charge. Now, I'm gonna do something really quick here, and I wanna stop for a moment, and I'm gonna do something a little unorthodox, and I'm gonna break some preaching rules right now. Um, I wanna stop the sermon, basically midpoint, and speak openly, if I could, to our church. We're probably in the most tedious portion of the book of Hebrews chapters 7 through 10. They are rough. And for a lot of us, we're probably thinking, who cares about this? It's important. It's very, very important. And I know for many of us, there is a temptation to pull back. There's a temptation to disengage from listening, from probing, from studying, from engaging. So with your permission, I want to firmly and I want to humbly address this very thing. And I want to address this especially for our discipleship groups, but even more so for those of the people who are part of our mission membership because they have asked for a higher level of accountability to their discipleship. So I'm specifically talking to everybody in discipleship groups at our church, but more particularly, I'm calling out mission members who said, call me out. If you do not fall in that category, play Candy Crush on your phone and zone out and I'll call you back in like 30 seconds, okay? But please listen. With your discipleship, with your personal work, <laughs> 
with your own study, press into this. In your groups particularly, do not fall into the pit of not showing up without doing your own personal work. Do not fall into the trap of needing easy, sugary application. What that practically means is stick with where we're at in God's word. And, where, and for what it's worth, collectively as a church body, we've set up our discipleship groups in such a way that what I know I'm going through, I know Andre's going through. And what Andre's going through, I know Megan's going through. So also what that means practically is don't fall behind and don't go too far ahead and don't ditch it for another book of the Bible or for some practical Christian living book. What the universal church needs, but what we need collective church is not more sermons, it's not better teaching, it's not more books, it's not better songs, but we need to engage. We need people engaging in a high level of discipleship no matter how challenging it may be. So being faithful to one's group, whether or not, then I'm not getting anything out of it whether or not I'm being fed or not. Just so you know, no shepherd shoves food into the mouth of a sheep. The sheep eat it, right? It's not the shepherd's job to force food into the mouth. I lead you, other people lead you to where you feast. If you remember, we started the book of Hebrews by studying its purposes, which were a word of exhortation. It basically tells everybody it's time to grow up. It's high time to leave toddler spiritual living. It's high time to change your diet from milk to meat. So for us collective, and I'm, I'm ending this encouragement, the problem is not with our rhythm. The problem is not with our content or your discipleship group. There is a problem with us as disciples. Many are too fearful in asking the hard questions. Many are too fearful in committing themselves to discovering the hard questions. And I think we're even more fearful of finding the hard answers. Also, just say with that, I think we also need to step from transparency to vulnerability in our discipleship groups. Transparency is I'm gonna tell you my problems, vulnerabilities, I want your help with my problems. Okay, so I'm gonna end this encouragement with this. These groups, which I encourage everybody to be in, these groups take time and they take effort. So anytime there's a challenging portion in scriptures, Hebrews 7 through chapter 10, where something isn't clicking right away, those challenging portions, those hard to read portions, those are personal and communal invitations for us to go into something greater and something deeper and something more. And true, authentic discipleship welcomes that challenge. Amen? Amen. Okay. Thank you for allowing me to say that. That added about another half an hour, 45 minutes to the sermon. Cancel your plans because we're gonna talk about challenging things. And what is more challenging than death? or the certainty of death. It is prevalent. And the greatest pain point, I would say, where the death is certain, the greatest pain point with that is we know that's certain, but the timing of our death is uncertain. Hebrews wants to inspire us to live a certain way between those two polarizing poles. Hebrews 9 tells us, read to Hebrews 9, verse 16. For that where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as one who made it is alive. Do we see what's happening? Do we see what he's saying? Hebrews is showing us the effects of death. Now bear with me, let me explain that. First, you notice that double word for, verse 16, verse 17. 
You can read that as, this is here for. He's making multiple conclusions. This author is so nuts, that's all he does. Conclusion, conclusion, this, for this reason, conclusion, here's another conclusion. He's crazy. And if you've been with us, you may remember we're not totally fine, but the last few chapters, this author is going off and he's obsessing over this idea of what's called covenant. That being God's unstoppable, unbreakable promises and commitment to mankind. Now be warned, this author does not care about perfect illustrations. He doesn't care about them. He doesn't care about precise analogies. So he makes this random illustration about a covenant and he goes, it's kind of like a will. God's covenants are kind of like a test, a testament, a testimony, a will, all those type of things, which is fascinating because if you think about it, this just said, God wrote a will. That's wild to me. God wrote a will, a non-negotiable, unilateral, take it or leave it, sovereign will to be enacted upon on the day of God's death. Because that's how wills work, right? Remember verse 17 says, a will is pointless unless death comes first. But in order to understand the purpose of his will, he wants us to experience or know or understand the purpose of death. What is the purpose of death? And verses 15 to 26 really do this insane detail and he goes all over the place and it's really daunting, which makes this chapter hard, or as I heard somebody say this week, frustrating. And he goes off assuming his audience knows the significance of death. But just know this, and I want to say this as we kind of go into this. He's talking about certainty with an uncertain church, if you remember. This church is uncertain. Their hope is uncertain. Their community is uncertain. Their faith is uncertain. Their future is uncertain, which means their presence is uncertain. And now the stranger's undoing all these type of things, which just kind of proved to them that their past was uncertain. There might be people here today who are trying to stay afloat in uncertain seas as well. So the book of Hebrews word for you and it's word for me would say it's going to come by way of understanding death's purpose. Now, there are a gajillion books and maybe you've written one of these books or you've written one of these blogs or one of these posts talking or dissecting or discovering the meaning of life. There are a thousand gajillion books on it. But, but rarely do people slow themselves down to discuss the meaning of death. So in your own thoughts or in your journals that we passed out, I would love for you to just take that moment and think. The reason for death is blank. Is death's purpose to limit us, to show us that we are not immortal gods and we ultimately don't have control? Yes. Is death's purpose to dislodge us from finding security in anything that this life can show us? Yes. But most importantly, death finds its meaning because of what the Bible calls sin. And right there, as it always happens, most people's eyes start to glaze over like a delicious donut. <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> That's what happens. See, it's truly amazing. And I was thinking about this week, and I think it's truly amazing that I don't have to tell anybody here, not a single person, that our world or our country or this city is a straight dumpster fire. Like, I don't have to convince anybody that that is what we're in. If you, want to, if you want to know that, all you have to do is open Twitter. That's all you have to do. Humanity is not afraid to say, no, we're broken. Humanity is not afraid to confess faults or flaws or shadow sides or insecurities. We are all very aware of what we're in. 
But I do have to convince us that that trash fire exists because of my sin and because of yours. I like how philosopher Kierkegaard, uh, he defines sin. He says, sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from God. This diagnosis de-relationalizes us from God. And to remove ourselves from our holy God, the fountainhead of life, well, the wages of, wages of that would be death, Romans 6, 23. So to remove ourselves from God brings death. So when we shatter in grief or we're angry over death, and we can be and we should be, the reason death seems so wrong and unnatural is because guess what? It's wrong and it's unnatural. Death was never part of God's original plan for human existence. So every sinful, evil act in this world, it's boiled in the cauldron of mankind's control in order to become something apart from God. Have you ever thought about that? You can boil every single sin down to control. Let me show you. From pornography all the way to rape. That is the control of pleasure. Or from murder all the way to violence is the control of other people. Or from lying all the way to hypocrisy is the control of our image. And you could, there's so many more facets to that. And when the archetypes of humanity, Adam and Eve, decided to de-relationalize themselves from God in Genesis chapter 3, they were ashamed and naked. And every time they came to God, they came with guilt because they are uncomfortable with their new identity. Genesis 3.7 says this, and this is important. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, Adam and Eve, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, ouch, and made themselves loincloths. Everybody's seen the picture, right? Everybody knows that weird picture, right? Friends, this right here is the key to understanding Hebrews 9. This. This is the brass key which unlocks Hebrews 9. If you want to understand death, understand this moment. Let's sit with it for a moment. Any attempt to fix ourselves, to cover ourselves, is insufficient, fragile, dry, crispy leaves. And if you don't believe me, try and stop your death. If you don't believe me, push back the distant thunder. You can't, nor can I. And any attempts to control or to cover, to hide, to determine apart from God is to cover ourselves in leaves. So God at that moment steps in. He sees their embarrassing underwear. He steps in and he essentially tells Adam, and he tells Eve, if you want provision, you and your attempts can't. Let me. This is why sin, the death bringer, is so difficult for our culture to talk about, for Angelinos, for Los Angeles to talk about. Not because it speaks of our indiscretions, but because it speaks of our need for a savior. That's why we don't like and our eyes glaze over sin, because sin is a God word. Meaning to confess we're sinners, which I would say is the hardest three words in existence, I'm a sinner, is to allow the Bible to not only define our brokenness, but also talk about our remedy. Genesis 3 shows us that God gives a covering of an animal skin. 
God gives a covering of an animal skin. And this is, here's I'm getting to my point, and this is where we find ever the first, first animal sacrifice, the first atonement, the first death covering, the first drop of blood that splashed upon the ground. And God did it. God did it. Death is a curse, death as a curse is born in this moment in a lot of ways. So where Christians and those here who aren't pull away from death or sacrifice or blood thinking, how barbaric. How can Christians or any other faith system believe in that? How disgusting. Or thinking that was the Bronze Age. They didn't understand the world we live in now. They didn't understand human rights, so on and so forth. But that is a wrong way to read scripture because blood, sacrifice, and death reflected God's will and God's instruction, not man's. Verse 20, if you don't believe me, says this. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. This is going to get gnarly. Bear with me. But the Israelites for centuries cutting an animal's throat and watching its blood, that is its life, drained from its body was a visceral, visceral symbol of the devastating results of sin. The animals suffered the fate that human beings were supposed to suffer. So what seems barbaric is actually beautiful. Don't, don't pee to me right now, okay? Bear with me. Don't, don't get weird about it. God loves his people and does not want to kill them. And so the animal's life is symbolically offered as a ransom that would cover them. Literally with Adam and Eve, covered them. But now get this. Look at verse 22 of chapter 9 of Hebrews. You guys track with me? You good? You guys alive? Thank you. Grayson, where you at? (laughs) Verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary, necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves are better with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not only into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Yes and amen. Amen. Now see, since blood represents life and not death, Sprinkling the tabernacle, which we went into painstakingly details about a couple weeks ago. Sprinkling the tabernacle then was like a detergent. Let's throw some bleach everywhere. Like cleaning up a crime scene. They did that to clean it. But why did they do that? So that God's presence would stay and remain in their midst. I'm going to build on this. If we don't get how serious God takes our sin or how the high stakes of it. And we want to understand, if we really want to understand the seriousness of how God sees it or need to be saved, look no further than the violent, mutilated body of his son. This was God's final perfect covering. And any religion or faith systems that tries to teach that God can forgive or grant access to heaven apart from that mutilated violent death of his son would have a hard time marrying that thought with these verses. I want to make sure this is really clear. Christ's death is not one of like Buddha's like eightfold path. Christ's death in his blood is not one of Muhammad's five pillars. It was a sacrifice of the most valuable person in the entire universe. 
When you leave this place, what I'd love to challenge your Monday morning with is your assurance in the power of his death. Oh, how we would live differently. If you ever doubt that you as a sinner could be made clean despite your past, or you've ever doubt that God actually wants to be around you, please ask yourself each and every morning, what is greater, the stain of my sinfulness or the value or the virtue of the son, of the blood of the son of God? Now, let me show you very quickly three things about the son of God's blood that are unparalleled. Look at verse 15. This would be a little fun and interesting. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under their first covenant. Did you catch it? It's weird, right? It's really weird. But here's what he's saying. The death of Jesus is so supreme and not only saves those who look back upon it, us, but it also saves those who look forward to it. So number one on the power of death of Jesus Christ is the death of Jesus Christ is overarching. It not only atones and gives an inheritance to all of us, but all of us on the other side of the cross as well. So this is fun, and mostly probably some theologian nerds might geek out on this. Sean, you're probably gonna maybe have fun with this. You're not a nerd. You're a handsome, you're a good guy. You know what I mean, you know what I mean. Sean sends me the most emails. I'm not a nerd, I get one like every day. But have you ever considered how those individuals in the Old Testament found salvation? Now, this must confuddle the stranger's church because all of their matriarchs and patriarchs, the stranger is saying, all these people you look up to, Jesus scooped them up as well. But if the New Testament says Jesus is the way, truth, and the life, and there aren't many paths to God, and the cross hasn't happened, the resurrection hasn't happened, then what's up, Chuck? So I designed a screen to help everybody out. Tanner, hit it! (laughs) Picture's worth a thousand words. So I just thought I'd show this. Did you say amen to the screen? Yes! (laughs) Amen. Get on it, Lance. Here we go. Now, (laughs) I I don't want to answer just theological questions, but I want to show the power of the overarching death and blood of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, believers had faith in the sacrificial system, which foreshadowed the ultimate sacrifice. In the New Testament, believers have faith in the ultimate sacrifice fulfilled. So it's no different than, than it is today. Grace through faith. This is it. Second, his death is so mighty that a single drop of it has more authority than all other sacrifices and gallons of blood combined. So the death of Jesus Christ has happened once. This is important because there's a temptation to trivialize the cross. Look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have to offer, excuse me, had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ did not have to die multiple times. He did not get it wrong the first shot. He is not like the animals and he is not like the other priests. In a one act, the sacrifice of himself says he put away sin. You can write down in your journals, to put away sin means canceled, nullified, covered. This is a conquering of death. 
And lastly, and by Christ's death for them, it actually, and for us, and for you, it certifies the inheritance promised in his will. And this is where it gets pretty juicy. See, the death of Jesus Christ is the acceptable offering. Verse 27, this is so great. I love the Bible. And just as it appointed for man to die once, bye-bye reincarnation, and after that comes judgment. We're gonna get in tons of judgment in chapter 10. So if you're like, hit the judgment stuff, just wait up. I'll, I'll just come back next week. I'm gonna judge the living poop out of it. Well, you'll see. Verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly waiting for him. So the word death, dead, or die have now been changed to offered. That is a massive change. Christ offering ourselves to God and God to you. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll never forget when my grandfather died in 2013, after the memorial, which I had to do, which was one of the worst experiences of my life and most honoring. Um, I'll never forget because as we went back to their house, we found that his will, none of the grandkids were in it. <laughs> none of the grandkids were in the will. So everything was left to the kids and the kids were supposed to divvy it up to you know, the seven grandkids. So all my grandmother did was like, pick anything you want of his in the house. You see something just, and so I was like, oh, this is so awkward. But it might shock you what I chose. I have all the stuff that my grandfather had, tons. Uh, he was a fireman. He had this incredible fireman gear. It was just so much stuff. But I chose two things. I, wrote, I chose um, his old, completely unwearable jackets. And uh, I chose those because... That they, they just, it's gonna sound weird, but they just smelt like him. And, and, and my wife was kind enough to put him in a vacuum seal bag so that we preserve that smell wherever she's at. But every once in a while, I'll go and just smell them. Uh, I, I love my grandfather so much, I buy his cologne and I spray it on myself. Like that smell reminds me of his presence. So that was the inheritance I received with the death of my grandfather. It's the same inheritance were offered in the death of Jesus. The blood offering does the same thing now that it did in the days of the tabernacle, which means it puts God squarely in our midst. So when it talks about promised inheritance, which is beautiful because it's certainty beyond certainty, when it promises that, it basically you can sum it up in the word heaven. It is the sum total of all of God's promise to us in salvation. Okay? Now the problem for us is when I say heaven... Many Christians and those here who don't follow Jesus have some pretty disgusting, silly images of heaven in their mind. Just to show you, I just Googled heaven image search and the first three images is that. <laughs> this is disgusting. That and that. You don't believe me, go Google image it right now. This looks like Thomas Kincaid hell. Like this is not heaven. <laughs> Here, let me make my point. Pastor John Piper, super controversial, love him, hate him, whatever. He has a quote that's so famous and so important that it should be asked all the time. But this is John Piper's quote. He goes, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. 
If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you've ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? I will confess it is tempting for my flesh. There is a thousand sermons that should be taught in the afterlife, and we will get there in due time. We go by what the Bible says. We will get there in due time. For today's takeaway, heaven must be equated, not to that Thomas Kincaid garbage, but it must be equated to presence, God's presence. By his death, Jesus' death and sacrifice and blood, it is all about bringing us to his presence. Another New Testament book says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might, what? Bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. So if you're hearing me correctly, his death is not simply about forgiveness or you being able to do good, right, moral things or spiritual experiences. It is about his presence and it has always been about that. Being with him, near to him, singing to him, listening to him. Now hear me, if the presence of the Lord does not inflame you or inflame me, then heaven will be burdensome. It's paradise lies within his presence. It's not that there's an absence of tears, it's who is in wiping the tears away. Now I asked the question at the start of the talk and I basically said, if death is certain, but when we die is uncertain, how does a faithful follower of Jesus live between those two polarizing poles? The stranger tells us, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are, here it is, eagerly, eagerly, eagerly waiting. I get a little nervous speaking about the second coming of Christ because I think people here might think I'm gonna hand out like megaphones and like sandwich boards to say end is nigh. Like I think there's a little bit of like, is that what he's gonna get into now? And some still might think that. But I was reminded so beautifully and so sweetly this week that when I searched the Bible, there are over 300 references to Jesus's second coming. That's roughly one out of every 13 verses. But more than that, I believe nearly every one, 99% of every single moral command in the New Testament is tied to the second coming. That says something, not about just our future, but about our present day. You know what that means? It means it's about passionate living today. So when it's brought up, it's to reorientate or, uh, you know, changes orientation of Mondays. And our personal litmus test for this morning would be, is if you're following him, if you want to know if you're following him wholeheartedly, it can be seen as if you are eagerly waiting for his final deliverance. I want us to take this with us in our time of response. Because if these passages of these, these passages were more real to us, how would it change our life? Here's how. I'm going to go over four things really quickly. But if the, pa- the words of these passages were more real to us, how would it change our life? Number one, mission urgency. I was so convicted this week knowing if I was really 100% fully aware of death 
the second coming of Jesus on being on my thoughts and my prevalent thoughts and not just in my tertiary, but I was actively praying over it. I would have such mission urgency to share the life and the death of Jesus with all in my life. Two, to love greatly. My wife and I got in a stupid fight this week. And I tell you what, knowing about the second coming of Jesus, knowing about death, it forced me in the best way possible to let bitterness go, to embrace and to forgive way faster, way sooner. Third, invest rightly. We really believe Jesus is coming. Our time and our talent and our treasure would be prioritized. Church would be prioritized. These people would be prioritized. Eternity would be prioritized. Fourth, enjoy eternally. I would know that all the simple pleasures of life, great food, great company, great sex, great culture, great time, great whatever, are only foretaste of what I will be able to have in eternity. Meaning, knowing I'm not going to let any good thing become a God thing. I would encourage you Christians to reflect and assess your present day living in our response time today with these questions because it should sober us, should excite us, and it should make us alive. I'm gonna end with this quote from Martin Luther, old theologian. He said, we should live every waking day as if Jesus died yesterday, rose today, and was coming tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Pray with me.